Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 24, the final episode in our 1 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, The Collection for God's People and Final Words where we'll discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 24. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, sometimes after the great and the glorious themes of an epistle like 1 Corinthians, we can kind of overlook the final chapter, which is a bunch of greetings and a bunch of kind of shorter um, commands or, or details, but it, it's well for us to study these things carefully because it gives us uh, insights into many of the practical aspects of Paul's ministry, the practical admonitions he gives to godly people and, and personal greetings that are very motivational and encourage us and help us to want to live for the glory of God. And so in this, the end of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see Paul addressing a collection for the saints, money, uh, and also giving uh, various aspects of the way he thinks about ministry, the way he thinks through through his own life and his own ministry, and we'll glean some very significant patterns there. And then other greetings that he gives that are full of, of rich wisdom. So we're going to walk through these 24 verses, and I think it's going to be for very good effect. Let me go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 24. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. What is this collection that Paul is writing about in verse 1, and what practical steps does Paul give them in verse 2, and why? 
Yeah, he's talking about a collection of money for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, Jewish believers in Christ. We learn from John chapter 9, even while Jesus was ministering, when he healed the man born blind, uh, John writes that even then the Jews had decided that if anyone had said that Jesus was the Messiah, they would be kicked out of the synagogue, meaning basically blackballed from Jewish life. Uh, whereupon if you tried to carry on a living, if you were a carpenter or a potter or a cobbler or a farmer, you wouldn't be able to sell your goods. Uh, you would become poor. And so there was tremendous poverty uh, directly tied to the fact that there were believers in Christ. And so this uh, offering for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem is discussed in many places in the New Testament. Galatians, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, in Romans 15 and other places. So that's the offering. It's, it's a bunch of money. And it seems like the Corinthians had pledged to give it, but they hadn't actually given it yet. Uh, and concerning practical steps, what he says is he wants them on the first day of the week to set aside uh, the money that they had pledged and to build it up before he gets there so that when he comes, he won't have to run around and everyone scurrying and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they only give him what's at hand at that point, kind of like somebody reaching in their pocket or in their wallet to see what they might have. Said, no, you need to plan ahead, be intentional in your giving. And the first day of the week, and this, by the way, is one of those little indications that that the Christian day of worship was the first day of the week, resurrection day or the Lord's day, Sunday, and not for the Jews, the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. So at any rate, set aside the money, let it build up, and then when I come, I'll just take take the money that you have set aside. So he shows the intentionality, the planning, uh, the purposefulness, and the regularity of it, the fact that, that the giving should be done regularly. So I think this gives us some insights into Christian giving now uh, in the terms of your church, your tithes and offerings, things like that. I think there's some good advice in these couple of verses uh, for you. What's the purpose of the letters Paul mentions in verse 3, and what role does Paul offer for himself in verse 4? Yeah, the letters of introduction seem to be issues of trust, so that the, these are trustworthy men, and the money can be entrusted to them, and they are going to be able to deliver it to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And so it's a matter of, similar to, I was a trustee of the International Mission Board, or there are trustees of various funds and all that. These are people that are trustworthy and can oversee the practicalities of, especially of money. Uh, the trustees of the IMB were looking at a budget of $165 million a year that Southern Baptist gave for missions. And the idea is we are there to guarantee that the money is spent well and wisely according to the, the desires of the churches. And so also here, the Corinthian church, these letters of introduction heighten the sense of the trustworthiness of these men and that the money is going to be uh, spent in the right way. And what role does Paul offer for himself in verse 4? Um, he also wants to go if possible. So he doesn't know his own plans, and he's going to get into that um, in a minute. But, you know, the idea is if it's possible, if it seems advisable, I'm, you know, I'm going to go with uh, them. And, and so I'll guarantee that that money gets to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. What personal plans does Paul turn to in verses 5 through 7? And what is he hoping to accomplish by his proposed visit? 
Yeah, Paul uh, in these verses gives us an insight into the way he thinks uh, about his own life, the way he makes plans, and um, you know he he talks about having a specific vision and idea. He he wants to uh, be with them for a while. He wants to spend not just a little time with them, but a good amount of time. Uh, he says in verse seven, he knows that they have deep issues. We've been covering that in sixteen chapters now, um, and and he wants to spend time with them. He has a vision for that, but he also is open to being flexible. He says, perhaps I'll stay with you for a while, maybe even spend the winter. He also wants them to help him on his journey, as he does in Romans 15, needing money. You know, Paul needed financial support. He touches on that with the Corinthians and in other places we've talked about. So fundamentally, we're giving, uh, we're being given by Paul insights into his vision, his flexibility, his intentionality, his, his planning. Um, all of those things come across in these verses. How does Paul describe the opportunity before him in Ephesus, and how could he think that there are opportunities for ministry with the presence of many adversaries, as he articulates in verse 9? Right. He calls it a great door of effective uh, work has been opened uh, for me. He says the same thing, I think, to the church Jesus does to the church at uh, Philadelphia in Revelation 3. He said, behold, I have set before you a door which no one can shut. And so it's similar to, I think, the hedge of protection um, and negatively for Satan and demons and all that. It's a, kind of a barrier and Satan can't get at Job or at any of his possessions. And effectively, it seems that God opens a door for Satan to have at him. So it's, it's basically providential permission or opening or opportunity that comes for Paul to do a ministry. A door opens, he walks through it. So it represents, it's a symbol of an, a providential opening in Ephesus for him to do work. And part of the confirmation for Paul that there's great work to do is the huge amount of opposition that he has, uh, that he sees there. We, we, um, See in Acts 19, that riot in Ephesus over Artemis of the Ephesians and all that. And Paul sees it as a very fruitful place to minister. In mm -hmm. Acts chapter 20, he gives the farewell address to the Ephesian elders. It's a, one of the most important churches. So he says, look, I'm going to stay there. There's ministry for me to do. There's work. And there's a lot of opposition. And where there's smoke, there's fire. Where, where Satan kicks up a lot of opposition, he must have something there that he doesn't want them to do. And so mm -hmm. Paul, Paul thinks oppositely. We would <laughs> think we're going to run. Paul's like, no, 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 this is the place to be. Right. Right where I need I'm to be. right where yeah. I need to be. So he has a tremendous amount of courage and buoyant hope as he does ministry there in Ephesus. What does verse 10 teach us about Timothy's personality, and why is it important for pastors like Timothy to have nothing to fear from their congregation? Yeah, I think Paul addresses the issue of fear with Timothy a number of times. You look at First and Second Timothy, you know, he says, God has not given us a, a spirit of timidity, but of, of power, of love, and of self-discipline. You know, he's, he's, I think Timothy had a tendency toward fear of man, and this is kind of clear proof of that. And he's saying, look, I'm, he's working both sides of the equation. He's telling Timothy, Timothy to not have a spirit of timidity, but he's also telling the Corinthian church, don't behave badly, you know, don't intimidate him. Uh, make sure, sure that he has nothing to fear when he's with you. Um, you know, don't make his life difficult. It reminds me very much of, of Hebrews uh, thirteen seventeen, which says, um, you know, submit to your leaders. They keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Obey them so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage uh, to you. So local churches everywhere need to take this to heart. Don't make your pastor's lives miserable. 
Don't make them wish they were in a different church or wish they were leaving. And the way you do that is by basically being a good, healthy, loving church, coming to church, being involved in the ministries, um, praying for your pastor, submitting to his godly leadership, uh, not talking him down. Um, I'm not saying he's perfect, et cetera, but, but make it a good place for him to work where he would be delighted to work. I can tell you that you and I feel that way about First Baptist Durham. There's mm. Speaking for myself, I think you would agree. Um, you know, there's no no church that we would rather work in uh, than this. It's a very fruitful and a beautiful place to be. And, you know, obviously if God calls us to other places, we'll want to minister there too. But fundamentally, the idea is local churches can be so healthy that pastors love to work there and it's a, a great joy for them to be there. So with Timothy, don't, don't make him afraid. And the reason is he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am, Paul says. Paul seems to have other concerns about how some might treat Timothy that he articulates in verse 11. What are some of his concerns for Timothy and his ministry there? Yeah, he says, no one then should refuse to accept him. So I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm not listening to him, etc. Paul says in, in, um, First and Second Timothy, he says, "Don't don't let anyone look down on you because you're young." And look, you can't control that. But again, like I said a moment ago, Paul's working both sides of the equation. He, he says to Timothy, basically, don't take it to heart if people look down on you because you're young. But here to the Corinthians, he says, "Don't refuse to accept him. Listen to him because he's teaching the same doctrine. He's basically representing me as a son with his father. He's serving with me in the work of the gospel. So please send him on his way in peace, so that when he leaves, he feels like, hey, that was a good time." with the Corinthians. Um, you know, you folks are able to do that. You're also able to make him say, that was one of the worst times I've ever had in my life. Mm. You're such a dysfunctional <laughs> church. So he said, don't do that. Send him on his way in peace and when he, and then he's going to come back to me. And, um, you know, I, I look forward to that relationship. So the idea is, the, the timeless principle here is a healthy relationship between a local church and the pastors. What does verse 12 teach us about Paul's relationship with Apollos and the limits of apostolic or pastoral authority? Paul talks about Apollos a lot in 1 Corinthians, and he's a significant figure. I know I actually know somebody that did a dissertation on, on how important um, Apollos was in the first couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians about mm. the issue of wisdom and rhetoric and polish. So Apollos was a very polished speaker, a public speaker. He also apparently, based on this verse, is his own man. And he, Paul, with a strong personality, apostolic authority, uh, says, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. And then the answer, he was quite unwilling to do so. So I'm like, that sounds like that was a strong conversation. You get that sense, like with Paul and Barnabas, you know, it's like, so I don't sense that they argued, but he's like, Apollos, you really need to go to Corinth right now with these brothers. No, I don't. I'll go later if the Lord wills, mm. that kind of thing. So, yeah, you get some insights, but you also get some insights, I think, into church authority. Here is the apostles of the Gentiles, perhaps the most authoritative leader for Christ. But look that, at the fact that his authority is resisted to some degree, or his suggestions at least. He wasn't some dictator. Uh, he wasn't what the medieval uh, Roman Catholic Church saw in the Pope, where he had um, literally the power of life and death. And he was dreaded and feared uh, with that power. Paul wasn't that kind of a leader. He's saying, hey, Apollos, I think you really need to go to Corinth right now. I think this is a great time for you to go. Well, I appreciate that, Paul, but I'm not going to go. Okay, but I still think it would be good. I know, I hear you. That shows you something. This is the apostle to the Gentiles who wrote Romans, and that's how it goes in terms mm -hmm. of his leadership. Verses 13 and 14 contain five 
incredible commands. Let's take these verses each in turn. Mm -hmm. How does verse 13 give us a sense of the challenges and dangers of the Christian life? Why might our culture have a hard time understanding or accepting the command to act like men? Mm -hmm. And how do you think the Corinthians understood this? Right. Well, the the translation, why don't you read 13 again, just get it uploaded. Yeah, verse 13 says, be watchful, mm -hmm. stand firm in the faith, mm -hmm. act like men, be strong. Yeah, all four of those give you a sense and then do everything in love in verse 14, those five commands. But the four of them give you a sense that it's hard to be a Christian. Uh, we're standing firm on the truth. The truth is going to be assaulted constantly by the world of flesh and the devil. And so you got to be on your guard. you got to be. You got to put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6. you got to expect a fight. There's going to be a fight. you got to be a warrior, a warrior for the truth, uh, you know, and stand firm in the faith. The faith is Christian doctrine. Stand firm in it. Take your stand on it. Like Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So make certain that you have built your house on the unshakable rock of the word of God. Stand on that. And then he says, act like men. Um, you know, it's very interesting. It's, it's a Greek word that's tied to the male uh, versus the female. Um, there's a Greek word anthropos from which we get anthropology, which just means be human. But then there's a word andros, um, which means uh, a man as opposed to a woman, a male as opposed to a female. And there's a this is a verb form of that. And so a very good translation is act like men. And I think if you look in the Old Testament, um, a number of verses uh, show a connection between masculinity, uh, being a man, and being a warrior, and standing firm, where, whereas uh, a man could act like a woman in a militaristic sense means he's not standing in the day of battle. He's, uh, he's afraid in the day of battle, not to be in any way disparaging because women show great courage in other ways. But when it comes to the battlefield, that was the purview of men, and everyone knew it. I think it just has to do with the way God made men, the way he made their bodies, the way he made their 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 normal height and their normal strength, their biceps, their their muscles, their their bodies are just physically stronger in the in the norm. Um, you know, for me being a geeky engineering type, I think about the bell curve distribution. It has to do with you know the average the average man is going to be taller than the average woman. The strongest man is going to be stronger than the strongest woman, et cetera. There are some women stronger than weak men. That is true. But the whole thing shifted up and it's just normal. And given the fact that on the battlefield back then, it was hand-to-hand -hand combat with edged instruments like, you know, swords and axes and things like that. And you're battling your enemy hand-to-hand -hand. and like footwear, you know, if you don't have good footwear, like the Roman soldier had, had, um, basically cleats on their sandals that gave them traction. If you slipped and fell, your enemy is going to run you through. Well, if you are a normal woman facing a normal man on the battlefield, he's going to shove you to the ground and run you through instantly. Therefore, most people knew you just don't put women on the battlefield. And so nowadays, this is strange because um, our warfare is so technological. And so a teenager that's good at video games can fly a drone and take out a whole village. You know, he's good with a joystick and can push the red button. He just took out a whole village. Mm -hmm. So a woman can do that as well as a man. But back then, 
It meant be a warrior. It meant be courageous, be strong, take your stand and be strong. Why is it we have trouble with it? Because we are utterly gender confused in our culture these days. There's a direct attack on the concept of gender. We have a very hard time answering what does it mean to be a man and not a woman. Uh, there's even a whole documentary, What is a Woman? And we, like many people, don't even have an answer. They can't define it because they've accepted a kind of a gender fluidity. That confusion is not from the word of God. In the beginning, God created man, male, and female, he created them. And Jesus wasn't confused. The Bible's not confused. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. And back then, in a military sense, it was men that needed to protect women and be strong. So is this a command for every Christian? I don't know. I think it could, the home base for this is the men of the Corinthian church act like men. Be strong, be leaders, protect your wives, protect your children, be there. But do it doctrinally too. Fight it, fight for doctrinal strength. Um, women can learn from it, I think. Just like home base uh, for, uh, you know, if you look at the image of a nursing mother, um, Paul says, we're gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. He's not saying he's a woman. He's saying he observes the way a mother cares for a toddler or whatever. And it's like, all right, I was like that. Or Jesus said, like a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He's not female. He's, not, he's saying, but there is an aspect there that that I note, that, that tenderness, that gentleness, that thoughtfulness, et cetera. Men can do that. So women can learn to be courageous, similar to a man. I think that's why I would take this command, act like men. How does verse 14, the command to let all that they do be done in love, hearken back to what Paul has already said to them in 1 Corinthians 13? Well, it's just a quick summary of what he said. If you if you do anything for the Lord that's not in love, it's worthless. It's not going to be rewarded. It gains mm -hmm. nothing. It profits nothing, et cetera. So it's 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. And then verse 4 through 7, he describes it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Doesn't envy. Doesn't boast. Not easily angry. Keeps no record of wrongs. Or in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. There's just attributes. He says, look, do everything that way. Don't do anything that's not motivated by love. Vertical, love for God, but also horizontal, love for each other. Let everything be done in love. Now, why is it important for churches to recognize and honor Christians who have labored hard in faithful service to the Lord, as Paul does here so well in verses 15 through 18? Yeah, I think not everyone serves the same way. There are men and women that whose service is exemplary. There are men and women whose service is courageous, men and women whose service is sacrificial. I had the privilege years ago of meeting Elizabeth Elliot, um, who sacrificially laid down her life after her husband Jim Elliot was martyred. And she went into those that had martyred him along with some of the other widows. And they set up, set up there and along with some other laborers uh, led the Huarani, uh, many of them to Christ. And so she, she had um, a courage and, a, and, and is worthy of honor. And uh, I remember it was a delight to tell her the impact she'd had in my life. And so it is also here with the household of Stephanus, they're their first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So follow their lead as they serve with that kind of level of sacrifice, submit to them, meaning they know how to do that ministry, do what they say. You know, follow their example, that kind of thing. So I think it's important to realize that there are some that lead out in sacrificial, self-denying service to Christ. And the others who aren't quite at their level need to learn from them and kind mm. of effectively sit at their feet. 
Whose greetings does Paul send on to the Corinthian church, and why is it important for local churches to have cordial relationships with mm -hmm. other local churches? Yeah, the church is in the province of Asia, so Asia is modern-day Turkey. Uh, we get that that postal route in uh, Revelation 1 through 3, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, um, Sardis, Philadelphia, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea, those seven churches. And um, they were churches that were planted. Paul and others planted those churches, and um, and Paul greets them. Paul's in Ephesus. It's one of those churches in Asia Minor, um, modern day Turkey. And so the churches in that province say hello, send you greetings. And so here's that again, that beauty of the church universal, which is the body of Christ, the one church, the the New Jerusalem, the the, the city of the living God, so to speak. All, all of those images of one body uh, of Christ, universal. Every person who has ever been born again by the power of the Spirit is a member of the universal church, the body of Christ, no matter where you go, mm -hmm. living or dead, all part of that mystical united body of Christ. That's the church. But then plural, churches are local churches, and they are in certain localities like Paul's in Ephesus. There's a church in Ephesus, a church in Thessalonica, in and Macedonia, in that area of Philippi, a church, churches more in Asia Minor were, you know, there in in Sardis and and Philadelphia, Laodicea, those churches, um, Pisidian Antioch, all of those places, um, it's good for us to recognize we're not the only local church. We're part of a vast worldwide movement of Christians that are arranged similarly to us in local churches that meet on Sundays, and they hear preaching, and they pray, and they do ministry, and it's good for us to know that we're all part of the same universal church, part of that same body. And so the way you do that is by kind of sending people who come and say, hey, they say hello, and they're they're doing great, and they, they often think about you and pray for you. And so you get those kind of greetings. Now, Paul also singles out uh, two individuals here. Who are they, and what do we learn about them in this verse? Yeah, Priscilla and Aquila are well known. Uh, we meet them in the book of Acts, Acts 18. They were tent makers as Paul was, and he worked with them, and they were Jews who had come to faith in Christ. And they uh, have a significant ministry. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in the book of Romans. They're mentioned in other places. And they were the ones that were instrumental in, in more, more rightly instructing Apollos in the information that he lacked uh, concerning Christ, the mm. biography of Jesus, what was lacking. He taught about Jesus accurately from the Old Testament, but he didn't know the facts of the Gospels that we now have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which also weren't written. But Priscilla and Aquila knew that story uh, in greater detail and were able to tell Apollos. So that's who they are. And, and now they are uh, apparently with Paul in Ephesus and are greeting them. You know, uh, saying saying hello, and there's also a church that meets at their house. So you get that idea of a house church, uh, which was very common back then. And what do you think Paul means uh, by this instruction to greet one another with a holy kiss in verse 20? Yeah, I think what it means, and I think we really saw this in the COVID era when there was a lot of virtual fellowshipping where, where we ourselves had, had – um, uh, a live stream and people are not allowed to come to church for a while and we missed being physically together um, and there's just a physicality even if you never touch someone physically to be able to look them right in the eye to be able to see the coloring in their face um, to be able to see them laugh or to see them respond in emotion to a particularly moving part of a sermon or something like that there's, there's a power there but this is physical uh, to greet someone with um, a holy kiss and I think what he means there is is it's, there's nothing inappropriate or untoward there um, I think definitely men with men and women with women no matter what you want to do within reason culturally acceptable is you know a hug a handshake pat on the back 
uh, something like that. Uh, obviously, you need to be careful across genders uh, to be appropriate. But, you know, the idea would be uh, a physical relationship one with another that really can't be replaced. So I think that's what it is. Show affection for one another. Mm. Let people know that they are welcome. Let me say a word about singles and widows and widowers. Um, I think it's it's especially important that those people be touched in appropriate ways. So men with men, women with women, that that people feel the physical touch because they can go without that, they can go years without anyone touching them. Hmm. And, you know, I think it's, it's just very important uh, for us to show that kind of affection, but that, that it'd be done in a holy way. You know, you can you can see some things in some youth groups and all that. It's like some questionable <laughs> motives going on there. It's like, let's not do that. Mm. But what I am saying is there's a physicality to fellowship that's irreplaceable. What does verse 21 teach us about Paul's usual way of writing a letter? Paul has some big signature he mentions, I think, in Thessalonians or something like that. He says, like, look look at these large letters I use. Maybe that's in Galatians. Um, you know, and, and he's like, I kind of sign my letters here at the end. So reading the ends of these letters, Paul had secretaries or amanuensises, people who would listen to him or take dictation from him and write down the letter. We know who, who did it in Romans. We were joking about it earlier. <laughs> I, Tertius, who wrote the letter of Romans, send you greetings. So, like, you know, trivia question. Who really wrote the book of Romans? Answer, Tertius. Don't know anything about him, but he's some guy <laughs> that that uh, wrote down what Paul said. So Paul dictated and they wrote. Also, there's a sense that Paul had trouble with his eyesight. Hmm. So he uses, he writes big letters so that he can see them himself. And he says, that's basically my signature. So you know that this letter is genuine. Hmm. By the way, it's it's uh, it's a command that the first generation can obey, but no succeeding generations can because we have copies mm -hmm. and we can't copy Paul's signature. So it's like, look at what large letters I use as I write this with my own hand. Sorry, can't do it. So anyway. Mm -hmm. How does verse 22 give us an insight into what we will think about people we loved on earth and who in the end are condemned to hell? Mm -hmm. And what does our Lord come mean here. Right. First of all, I think we're speaking ultimately, finally, after the day of judgment, mm. there will be no tears in heaven over those that are condemned to hell. And fundamentally, if they don't love Jesus, I don't want to spend eternity with them. I don't. I don't want to I don't want to do the world with them. We do it now as the parable of the wheat and the weeds say we grow together and our root systems are all intertwined and we do society together. We drive on the same roads, we shop at the same stores, we work at the same companies. We're all woven together and some of them are unconverted elect and we have hopes for them. But ultimately, finally, if they will not love Jesus, may they be accursed. May they go to hell fundamentally. And, and it's like, wow, it's rather shocking. But that's a, fundamentally what he's saying here. Mm. Let there be a curse on them. What curse could Paul have in mind if you don't love Jesus other than, uh, other than condemnation? So fundamentally, it's this. Salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit, is to bring individuals into a love relationship with Jesus Christ. Then he says, Maranatha, or come, Lord. And so that's a prayer. By the way, that's an insight into prayer. I, 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 tweeted this recently because I was thinking about effective prayer. And so you could think of a wrong way of thinking of, of prayer being effective. You're either giving God an idea he didn't have, or you're persuading him to do something he didn't really want to do. Hmm. Prayer is neither one of those. You're never going to give God an idea he didn't have, and he will never be persuaded to do something he doesn't think is best. So what is prayer? It's discerning what he actually does want to do, and then asking him to do it. This is a very good example. 
does Jesus want to come back someday? Answer, yes. Then, Lord, would you please do that? Mm. You should do what you want to do, and I want you to do it too. Come. Mm. And he says, come, Lord, soon. The idea is come immediately. <laughs> come mm. as soon as you can. And I think Paul says, or sorry, John says it at the end of the book of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus. How does Paul's final greeting show the love that he has for this local Corinthian church? And what final thoughts do you have really on this letter that we've been walking through throughout yeah. this podcast? Yeah, it's beautiful. He ends, he ends all his epistles the same way. The grace of the Lord be with you. And it's kind of like grace to you when you walk into the epistle and grace be with you as you walk out. May you go in grace now, now that you've read 1 Corinthians. And he finishes by just saying, I love you. I love you all. And if you look back over the 16 chapters, you realize how many hard issues he walk through with them, how many dysfunctional things he dealt with. Um, it's been difficult. The, the topics have been sharp and difficult and painful. And he's had to walk through some difficult issues with them. He says, but I want you to know my love is for all of you in Christ Jesus. So I would say that as a final sum up. This First Corinthians, this letter of First Corinthians is a gift to all churches in that the Corinthian church was so divided by factions. It was so worldly, so struggling with sin that needed to be disciplined, so dealing with sexual sin, dealing with lawsuits among believers, dealing with marital problems, working it through uh, singleness, trying to understand that, meet sacrifice to idols. How do we understand elements of Christian freedom? How to use it without flaunting it? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies or love builds up. The meet sacrifice to idols issue is more applicable than we ever thought. Problems with the Lord's Supper, trying to understand gender-based roles, the head coverings passage, women silent in the churches walk through those things. And then just spiritual gifts, the spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy and the great love chapter nestled in the middle of it. And then the question beautifully, the question about resurrection and the, the, the doctrine that Christ is the first fruits of a vast harvest and we're going to be resurrected in glorious bodies. What an incredible journey it's been. And all of it in answer to problems coming from this dysfunctional church. So in the wisdom of God, thank God for the dysfunctionality of the Corinthian church and the beautiful truths that Paul laid out in addressing it. Well, we want to thank you for joining us on this journey through the book of 1 Corinthians and for this, our final episode in this letter from the Apostle Paul. We want to invite you to join us next time as we begin a new study in the book of 1 Timothy. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.